Welcome to Camershake Podcast, episode 46. Now, before we get into today's episode, if you haven't checked out our brand new website, uh, go and check it out. Do us a flavor. It's www.camershakepodcast.com. And you can join our little community there. It'd be super awesome if you would um, subscribe to our little newsletter. We would love it if you did that. Um, likewise, if you are listening to this episode on audio, like on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Amazon or something like that, you can, of course, head over to YouTube where you uh, not only be able to hear our beautiful voices, but you'll also be able to see our faces in full Technicolor. Now, that being said, please welcome our super special guest, Camera Tech episode 46. Today we have none other than Mr. Glenn Dewis on the show. How are you, Glenn? I'm very well. How are you both? Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Good cool. stuff. Good stuff. So, Glenn, how's, how's pandemic life in Devon treating you? Uh, do you know what? It's not too bad. I've, I've kind of literally just come out of my own lockdown, lockdown anyway, because I've just been uh, writing the latest book. So I had to just absorb myself in that. So even if we weren't on a lockdown, I would have been. Um, but I can think of worse places to be, I'll be honest with you. Yeah. When we're having restrictions, I really can. So you know, it's, uh, it's, it's all right. It's all right is what I'll say. There's one thing I was going to ask you, because... Um, you're, a, I mean, under normal circumstances in real life, if you want, you're a portrait photographer. Mm -hmm. So you're a portrait photographer, a best-selling author um, of a particular book that I want to talk to you about later. Um, but you're also a Kelby One instructor um, and self-proclaimed animal lover, of course. <laughs> um, how do you find being in lockdown in the middle of a global pandemic uh, as a portrait photographer when you um... can't get any close to people? It's it's a it's a very good question, and it's something I have talked about a little bit on some recent videos as well. It's you know you kind of have to accept that you can't go out and take portraits. And whereas I've seen, you know, without naming names, you see quite a few people saying, "Oh, I can't wait for the you know the COVID to disappear so I can get out, and start taking portraits again." I, I've just my mindset is that you can't you can't be like that because our creativity is going by the title of a recent video. Creativity is like a muscle. If we don't exercise it it's going to get weaker so that when we do come out of this, everything's going to be so much harder. So my kind of attitude is, look, I know I can't get out and take portraits, especially of veterans, because it just would not be safe to do it. Um, so just get out there and do something. Even if it's not your thing that you would ordinarily photograph, just get out there and do something. I mean, I'm doing this landscape stuff and I am absolutely loving it. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's been fantastic fun. It really has. And, and without it, I think I'd have gone a little bit stir crazy. So you've got to do something, regardless of what it is. Just keep the keep the tools in your hands. Well, there's a there's a video of yours um, I watched not too long ago, which was entitled "I Suck at Landscape Photography." <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a title! <laughs> yeah, perfect. Well, it's just straight down straight to the point. Because you know the funny thing about this is, um, I watched this and I thought, is this really? I'm really in the same exactly the same boat. I was gonna last. Um, Last August, I was going to go to Canada to see family in Nova Scotia. And also, at the same time, I was going to take that as an opportunity mm. to, um, you know, to level up my landscape photography game. Because I'm completely crap at landscape <laughs> photography. And it's mainly because I never actually do it. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and so, like, watching your watching YouTube video, I'll maybe think, well, yeah, that's really no reason why, you know, I can't do this in my backyard. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. 
I, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, like, you know, you say about being in Devon, we are very fortunate. I won't say lucky because I've worked really hard to get to live here, but mm. I'll say fortunate. And we've got a lot of stuff on our doorstep that we can go out locally. There's like nine different woodlands near to us. Okay. And then we've got the coast not too far away. So, you know, we are lucky when it comes to that. But even so, you know, if I just go out into the little village here and just walk around, there is there are things that we can photograph. So it doesn't have to be the the epic landscapes it can be the little things you know you know you you mentioned glenn about it being a creative muscle is it couldn't it, it couldn't be more true you know I, mm. I found myself getting quite down and you know feeling yeah. a bit crappy over the last year or so since all this began and mm. it got to a point um towards the end of last last year this case can't carry on and i forced myself to go out and take a photo of something that caught my eye in my local town my local village yeah. every single day and i made sure of it and i posted Brilliant. it and and that's what i did and i'll tell you what Brilliant. do you know how much happier i was during that, that yeah, month yeah, of doing yeah. it yeah and yeah. It's, I've, you, I've kept that you've going got the, ever you've since. got the tools in your hands nick haven't you, you you're out there doing something and you yep. are exercising it and i'm convinced if we if we just do something you know like me being a portrait photographer me by doing landscapes that's definitely changed me and I'm sure it's going to benefit my portrait photography when I get back to it. Same with you guys. You know, if you get out and do something, no matter what it is, it's got to have a benefit when you get back to normality. It's got to. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, you're, uh, any little thing that you learn doing landscape mm. will, will translate, something will translate across. Definitely. Even if it, yeah. even if it's your understanding of, of what, how aperture works in longer, oh, I don't know, whatever it might be. And just, just sl slowing down more than anything, yeah, mate, man. just, you know, taking that time to slow down and enjoy where you are, that is, I mean, do you know, if I just going to digress just a little bit, I did a, I did a picture going back a few weeks now and it wasn't what I'd planned. I'm in this woodland near me. I, I didn't get the picture I wanted to get and I just stopped and had a coffee and just relaxed. And I thought about anything and everything except photography. And then I saw this tree with this lichen on it and the tree, the light came through. And I thought, oh, grab that shot posted it and then I had somebody who's actually a member of the Kelby One community because I did something for them and he's posted in this comment section to say you did a video called I Suck at Photography like the one you mentioned Kirsten then mm. and he says but it's just made me think you did that portrait of a tree because you did it the way that you take portraits of people mm. you slow down you get to know them you take time and then it all comes together and I thought my god you know he's right that's really quite wise there's definitely an overlap between landscape and portrait if you kind of do it that way so there's definitely benefits of doing something else because there's going to be an overlap like you say nick there has to be what is it you know that's an interesting thing because we um a little while ago um, in fact last i guess it was like last summer or autumn and uh, nick and me decided that seeing that we can't really shoot other people you know we're going to do something different we're going to shoot cars that was sort of mm -hmm. our idea and so we went out and we you know um we had a guest on the show um, who specialize in light painting cars. And so we kind of thought that's a cool thing to do because, you know, cars, that's fine. You know, we can, yeah, we yeah. can photograph a car. And so, you know, we did a few of those. And then I spoke to, uh, to someone. Um, and I, you know, we were just discussing these shots that we've taken. And I said, I kept saying like, look, you know, I like what we can do with the car. I'm just not, I just don't seem to be, able to find the right backgrounds like the, the right settings because right. that's like if you think about it as landscape photography with a car in it then it makes you think completely differently about the final yeah, yeah. shot that really so sort of switched on a light bulb and it's like yeah that makes mm. perfect sense you know let's think about the location first 
and mm -hmm. then let's see how we can you know how we can fit the car into that and that's really really worked and i think like with that uh, our our automotive shots improved radically because mm -hmm. they now you know, this, you, you put a different emphasis on the background because before it was all the focus was all on the car. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas yeah, so. it's, it's everything, isn't it? It's the whole thing. But, you know, you, you're not going to know all that straight away. And this is the great thing no. about the photography world, isn't it? There's always more to learn, more to consider. When you go back and do something a second time, you maybe mm -hmm. do it a little bit different. I did, I did a talk recently and it was all to do with um, slowing down and the benefits of it. And I said, there's like, I, I tried to come up with this real clever mnemonic. I was trying to be wise. Didn't come easy. And I, and I, I and it was the, it was the sir tech, the sir principle, slow down was number yeah. one, immerse yourself in the environment and repeat. Yeah. So if you think, if you could go back and photograph some, let's say if you're, you know, you're taking a portrait, if you could go back and photograph that same person again, would you do it the same way or is there something you'd change? Because you get to know a little bit more about them and what suits mm. them and, and whatever. Do you know what I mean? So that's what's really exciting about it all. There's, there is always more to learn. I love it. I think this pandemic and the whole lockdown and everything else, you know, if you look at it the right way, it, you know, it really has been an opportunity to, you know, to change. Mm. And I know like humans are usually sort of, oh, a lot of humans are kind of change adverse, you know, but I've really learned in this pandemic that change can actually be a good thing because I do think yeah. that having been forced to think differently, do different things, you know, uh, photograph things that I wouldn't have ordinarily photographed, it's actually overall made me a better photographer. Yeah. So whilst otherwise, I think, you know, I would have probably just carried on doing what I was doing before. And mm -hmm. I would have done a hell of a lot more headshots for sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and my bank account would, would thank me for it. But, you know... <laughs> But as it is, um, I think, you know, I've definitely, definitely improved my skill set. Yeah. Um, and if, if anything is a takeaway from from this whole, you know, situation, then then that is. And it, and it's also, it's it's okay. I mean, Nick, you mentioned there that, you know, last year they went through a phase when you started to feel really like, oh, God, it's, it's mm. really short. That's normal. We're all going to get through that. Anybody says that they don't experience that is lying. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? I'm all yeah. for being positive mental attitude and stuff like that, but let's be also realistic. Mm. You know, we're all we're all going to go through the, the doldrums and the feeling a little bit, oh, God, this is really hard. But just getting out and doing that one thing, just just forcing yourself to get out and do something, changes everything. I, I kind of equate it a little bit to when I used to do when I used to do the bodybuilding. There was times I didn't want to go to the gym. I'd, I'd rather just mm. lie in bed and not go to the gym that day. But you know what? Most of those times when I felt that way, when I did force myself to go to the gym, they ended up being the best workouts. Yes. It's, it's the same with photography. You know, I mean, if you think, oh no, oh no, I will go out. And you think, do you know what? I've really enjoyed this. I never knew I'd get that picture. So it's, there's, you know, you can you can kind of relate the photography world to pretty much everything that you do in life, really, because if you don't treat it like you know normally, then you're not going to get a result. If you kind of go with that mindset of just being relaxed and going out and enjoying the place, you'll get something. But if you go out thinking I must get a picture, you're probably not going to get one. Yep, yep, absolutely. You know, and all I couldn't agree with you more. All of these type of things relate, and then it's not specific to photography, to working out, to playing music, whatever it might be. This is a, just the way humans think yeah, and the way totally. our brains, brains work. Um, yeah. I, I mentioned last week on, 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 um, last week's episode that I've, I've started running for the first time ever. Right. I, and I've managed to stick to it every other day for like <laughs> two weeks. 
Good on and you. And there was a time, was it yesterday? I think it was yesterday. I just wasn't in the mood. I couldn't be bothered in the morning, but I forced myself to go. I went mm. the furthest and fastest that I've been today. There you and go. felt fantastic go. when I got back. Yeah, yeah. You know? Was it your mum's comment on that episode, on the video, that made you go out in the end? Oh, <laughs> I think your mum <laughs> comment on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was it. Yeah, she convinces me to do lots of things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Glenn, well, before, before this whole pandemic uh, thing started, you... Um, you did a project which I thought was really very, very eye-catching and very thought-provoking, which was your veterans project, yeah. the, the yep. World War II veterans project. Uh -huh. um, how did that come about originally? Uh, I guess almost almost by accident, and it certainly grew, it's grown, and it's still ongoing. You know, once this is all over, I will continue. Thankfully, we've got plenty of veterans to go and see. But it kind of came about because initially, um, I, I don't like photographing models. Let's just put it out there. I'm not. I'm not somebody who likes to photograph more. I like to photograph, for want of a better phrase, real people, real characters. Um, so I've seen a film, Dad's Army, the remake they did of Dad's Army a few years ago, and I loved it. And I said to my mate, I'd love to photograph people like that. He then told me about a reenactment group. I got in touch with them. I ended up photographing them. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And it was whilst I was doing that that I kind of just it just came to me that I would the ultimate thing I'd like to do would be to photograph surviving World War II veterans. And I'm all, I've always had an interest in that part of history anyway. Um, very close to my uncle Jeff, who's ex-military, and I just love to sit and talk to him about all sorts of stuff like that. Um, so I thought, that's what I want to do. It's my way of saying thank you, completely funded by me, to be able to present a veteran with a, a portrait that can stay in the family. And I didn't know any veterans, which was a bit of a stumbling block at the start. Um, but I found a group on Facebook called the Normandy Veterans Family and Friends, and a, a private group. They allowed me to join because I said that, you know, I've got an interest in it. My granddad was in Normandy. And and then I did a post to say what ideally I would like to do. And when I when I think back to what I wrote, they must have thought, who is this weirdo? Do you know what I mean? Because I, I basically <laughs> said, in, in, a, in a sort of, in a simple way, I basically said, can you introduce me to some really old people that I can go to see? And, it was, and that's basically <laughs> what it was, you know what I mean? Which is kind of weird, but thankful. I didn't actually say it like that. Um, but this one woman kind of just thought, oh, I'll, I'll test him out. Uh, and she said, she contacted me through that group and said, look, there's somebody I think I'd like you to meet and photograph. This is who it is. I'll be there as well. And, and it kind of went from there. And she, she really went there. To, to test me out to see, was I respectful, you know, and all that kind of a stuff. And mm. the veterans world being the veterans world, if you do something good and you do what you say you're going to do, it spreads very fast. But equally, if you do something bad, it also spreads very fast. And it mm -hmm. kind of just went from there. But I never, I never intended the project to grow as big as it has, but I'm really glad it has because it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's been the best thing I've ever done, not just in my photography life, but in my life, it's been the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. It's just been brilliant. And I, I think that comes through in those portraits. You know, you're, you're an amazing portrait photographer, full stop. But these portraits in particular, they are, because you know there's a message behind it, right. because you can tell that you've put, it's something that's close to you that's you know that you just wanted it's not just taking a portrait of someone there's real meaning for you behind it i, I think mm. they come through in those, those those pictures that's very kind of you to say thank you thank you, you I, know, if anybody I, I, hasn't I, I, yet seen I, glenn's photos 
<laughs> just get out, get out there and look at it. We'll have all the uh, address and details in the description below. Well Thank you, it. mate. Thank you. It's it's this project. I mean, my photography has changed since I did this project. I've, I have been on a huge learning curve since I started it as well. Whereas before, I was kind of comfortable doing portraits. But when I started do, photographing these people who weren't models who were maybe a little bit anxious about being photographed, but I had to get the best possible picture of them. And I'm not talking technically, I'm talking just them. Um, to, to, I've learned more in the last, if we ignore 2020, more in the last two years of taking pictures than I have in my whole career as a photographer about how to relax people. You know, it's, um, it's just been the, the best experience in, in so many ways. It really has. There was one thing I learned. Um, from Gary Hughes a few years ago where he said like the reason why he puts his camera on a tripod is because so he can actually move away from it and communicate with the person talk to them without having go. this thing in front of their face and you know when yeah. and because you know because of that I shoot portraits and headshots with a tripod I have done for the last so three years or four years or something because before that I was more like oh yeah but if I handhold it you know I can, I've got more flexibility I can move around mm -hmm. it's easier and then it's, you know I used to think like the tripod kind of ties you down and it's, it doesn't give you as much like flexibility but I completely had ignored this whole thing of building that relationship yeah with your subject and that was really an eye-opener I found out mm -hmm. that was you know I, I would never shoot a headshot without a without a tripod ever, mm. and I, but I never and you know like you Kirsten I never did beforehand. When it came to the port, mm. uh, the project, I was handheld because I yeah. felt tripods were a little bit cumbersome. They created a barrier. Far from it, mm. absolutely far from it. The camera's on the tripod. I mean nowadays with technology, do we need to really get behind the camera? Really, we can see what's on the back. We know that that you know certain cameras we've got that thing where it'll lock onto their face, it'll lock onto the eyes. I know that that's going to be working. I can remain above the camera and keep that engagement, that contact going. And while I'm doing that, they're not self-conscious and, and aware that I'm taking a picture. Really, so it's the, the tripod is a vital part of the kit. Absolutely, yeah. Because we tend to forget um, sometimes that the person that we're photographing isn't. 99.9% of the time isn't used to being in front mm. of the camera. Yeah, and that's, yeah. You know, and I always find this, especially with headshots, is that probably the first, I don't know, 50, 40, 50, 60 shots are usually not keepers. They're really just warm-up shots. And as we kind of get to the meat of it, the real, mm. the really good shots start to happen when, you know, when, uh, when the subject uh, or the client starts to relax a little bit. And that's it's not necessarily always possible, of course, if, you know, if you get a very short amount of time, like, I don't know, at a, like when I shoot conferences, where I do headshots at conferences, for example, it's like, it's in and out and you don't really <laughs> have that time. Yeah, but, you yeah, know, when, you have yeah. a, when you have a client um, in a studio and you have a little bit of time around that, then you can kind of go through this sort of warm up at the beginning and it's when they start to relax, that's when the best shots start to come out. You see, it's, it's very different then if you think about how you're working there because people are coming in, they, they're getting a portrait taken, they're sitting down, and then you're taking those, uh, for want of a better phrase, throwaway shots because you know you're using those to give them time to relax. Mm, Whereas the, exactly. the way that I work is is, is different. It's you. Maybe it's just my own workflow is that when I my portraits are always done on location for a start off, so <laughs> yeah, it's in their different. homes, and I'll I'll always leave the kit in the car when I first turn up. I mean that kit stays in the car, does not come to the door with me when I first mm. knock on the door. So I'll spend half an hour, forty minutes, even longer sometimes 
chatting over a cup of tea, that's when we get them relaxed mm. and we're enjoying each other's company, having a bit of a laugh, having a bit of cake and whatever. And then I'll go, tell you what, I'm here to take your portrait. Let's go. I'll get the stuff from the car. Let's get that done and get it out the way. Yeah. So then setting up, I'm keeping talking. We do the portrait. And this is the, I'm sorry if I'm going too quick here, but the, no. the one, the one key thing when I'm doing this is because I have people say, when I'm taking a, when you're taking a portrait, do you ever show the people as you're doing it? Absolutely. I do. But the yeah. thing is, I've, we've worked so hard in a way to get them relaxed. Not, and that sounds odd, doesn't it? We've, we've spent time to get them relaxed. When I show them the portrait, which I do, which I was, if I was photographing you guys, I'd do exactly the same thing. Tethered to the laptop, I'd go, oh, I'd, I'd go, right, take a shot. And I'd probably take on a portrait shoot eight, nine shots maximum. That's it. Mm. Because I've spent the time before talking and getting them relaxed. Yeah. When I show them the picture, I turn the laptop. And what the key thing is what I've learned to do. Whereas before I would go, oh my God, Nick, you, you look amazing. Oh my God. Now, if you're self-conscious, Nick, you're going to go, oh, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. I hate to have my picture taken. But what I do is I go, oh, Nick, I am so happy with the lighting in this. The lighting, I'm just over the moon with this. These are going to look great. I'm really happy how these are turning out. Mm. So you're not thinking, always oh, praising me and feeling uncomfortable about it. He's like, oh, he's really happy with how he's setting it all up and it's all looking good for him. Brilliant. Do you know what I mean? It's a completely different approach. I'm so happy with the lighting on yeah. this. Man, I mean, it's a huge difference. Yeah, you know, the, the thing for me is when, when I do headshot sessions, especially when I do um, when I have a little bit of time and I, I do a longer session, um, I take, you know, I take some warm-up shots and then I get the client to have a look at maybe 20, 30 shots on the screen. And what that's telling me is how they look at themselves. Because yeah, ultimately, yeah. you know, ultimately with a headshot, you know, of course, I wouldn't be happy with it, but really, ultimately, it's about the client and whether they're happy with, you know, with the end mm -hmm. product. And everybody's got this thing about the way they look that, you know, it's just personal to, to them. So maybe somebody, you know, you might not, I don't know, like the shape of your nose. And so when your face is angled in a certain way, you just don't like the way it looks or whatever it is. Yeah. And me as a photographer, this is one thing I've learned through doing headshots for years is that the shots that I would pick as a photographer, I would think like, right, out of these hundred shots, these are my keepers. These are like the, you know, mm -hmm. um, the five-star images. They're guaranteed to be different shots from the one that yes. the clients would pick. Yeah, yeah. And so what that first session on the screen, um, like that minute or two minutes, you know, where we look at the shots on the screen, what that tells me, I'm actually not watching the shots, I'm watching the client and I'm watching their, I'm looking at how they react. And um, and that gives me an idea as to what they like and how I can then progress the session. So if I know, for instance, you know, they don't like the way they don't like to be photographed from, I don't know, just for say, from the left side or something like that. I know I can kind of avoid that and move into the direction, um, that a normal please that's, the clients up. That's actually really, that's really, really clever. That is because that's kind of making their particular photo shoot quite bespoke to them, as opposed yep. to you being almost robotic about the approach. Do you know what I mean? You're kind yeah. of thinking, right, okay, let's take a few, see their reaction. Right, I like the way they reacted to that. We'll mm -hmm. do more of that. I'll bank that. And then uh, exactly. that's, that's, I like that approach. That's good. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's really working for me. And um, as an end result, I'd like to say <laughs> I have lots of happy clients, but, you know, um, but um, that's really, uh, that was that was a, uh, like a turning point for me, I think, because when I first started doing headshots, I could never understand why I'd look at a picture and I think like, this is an awesome shot. How can I not like this? It's incredible. Mm -hmm. They look incredible. And it's go, oh no, I have a fat neck. 
It's like, you don't have fat. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I don't even know what that means. You know? But it's like, uh, I had a client um, some time ago, this was actually just, you know, before the pandemic. She got back to me a few months after the session because like, could you send me one of the shots with the fat neck in it? I just want to have that as a comparison to show people how good you are. To you know how 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 like how you can make people look, look really good wow. for the camera and I'm like, fat neck. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, what photograph that I took of you? You don't have a fat neck. You're isn't like, it weird how, how we view ourselves? It's strange, isn't it? it really yeah, is. It's bizarre. Yeah. Um. So anyway, coming back to your um, veterans shoot. Mm-hmm. So is that something you're you're planning on continuing once you know? Once oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's like I say, it's been the best thing I've ever done not just in my photography life, but generally it really has been very fulfilling. And I've made so many great friends with just the most amazing people. So I reckon, you know, when we can, I will be picking it up again and, you know, touch wood with the way things are. We've probably got, if we're going to be completely honest, maybe five years maximum of the project left really for for our World War II veterans, if we're being, you know, blunt about things. Mm. However, um, Having seen the impact it's had on veterans and families, I won't be stopping. I will continue because there are other veterans who are obviously going to be reaching certain mm-hmm. ages. So we've got, you know, we've got the Iraq War, we've got the, you know, Falklands War, so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. I think I will always, well, I will, there's no think about it. I will always do this kind of stuff for veterans, but then I've also got my other stuff as well. So, but yeah, I, I, I couldn't possibly stop now. I just couldn't. Did you? I mean, this is one thing actually that really interests me when I when I looked at the series of photographs. Did you come up with the look first? Like, did you develop the look and then went, okay, yeah. now I need to find veterans? Or was that just something that sort of organically happened? No, it was um again, great question. It was more a case of I knew I knew what I wanted to create, mm. that it was going to be something that I would I would call classic and timeless. Uh, and then I just kind of researched it with you know, I spent a quite a bit of time on Google and Pinterest looking at photographs from the 30s and the 40s, mm. looking at work of like Annie Leibovitz, Yusuf Karsh, um, and then just kind of playing around with it and almost almost reverse engineering some of their pictures to see mm. what I could come up with. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a one light setup. So, you know, you aim for that kind of Rembrandt setup. That, that's, that's, a, that's a given. So the style of it has got to come from elsewhere as well, hasn't it? It's got to come from how they appear on camera, relaxed and comfortable, and then the post-processing. So it was it was definitely something that I kind of worked on before really embarking on photographing the veterans, but it was done with the intention of then using it on those pictures. So there, there was a, a uniformity across the whole series. You know, I, I love that, um, that kind of, you're taking it, looking at a photograph and then trying to work out how mm. it was done, that mm. kind of taking it apart. I love doing that. I do all the time. I do it consciously when I look at somebody's side, like, you know, like looking at your veteran series, I'm immediately thinking, okay, what modifier was that? What was the angle yeah. of the lights? Like, mm-hmm. where, you know, is it one light or multiple lights set up? Um, and I, I do it unconsciously as well, um, or subconsciously, not unconsciously. <laughs> I know what you meant. I know yeah. what you meant. <laughs> I do, yeah, so I do it subconsciously. Um, you know, funny thing, funny story. There's my my daughter. She's she's nine now, but from when she was probably about five or six, um, I remember we were at we were at a train station in Germany, and I was looking at um, a movie poster, um, and it was something like a like a Marvel superhero movie or something, and it was an ensemble cast. So there was like a number of different superheroes or the actors in their costumes on the poster, and. 
I was looking at it and you could tell that it was a composite because if you looked at their right. eyes, you could tell they're all different modifiers and they were all shot in different studios under different right. lighting conditions. And you kind of go, aha, that's a softbox. That was not the box. <laughs> that's a blue dish. You know, they were obviously in different places. And so I taught her how to um, identify the modifier in in the you know in in the eye light basically yeah yeah it's such a such a funny thing so now every time we're out somewhere and she sees a picture or a photo or a poster or something she goes like oh i think this was softbox oh, you've created <laughs> you've created a monster there <laughs> yeah, yeah. i know, <laughs> I know. It's, it's a funny thing though. but I, I love taking things apart so you were talking about um some of some of the people that that you analyzed like annie Leibovitz, for example mm-hmm. is that what you would uh describe as your general kind of portrait um influence yeah, I, I definitely would. Uh, Mark Seliger, Leibovitz, Yusuf Karsh, Joey Lawrence, people like that for definite. And uh, I've always, I've, I've always looked at their work. I've, I mean, I remember years ago when you kind of like start out, people say, "Oh no, you shouldn't really look at other people's works. It causes you mm. to kind of compare yourself." I've never done that. I've never compared. I have always tried to copy. And I'm going back a few years. If I ever said that to people, there'd be like a sharp intake of breath and people saying, oh, you can't do that. You've got to be an individual. You know what I mean? Yeah, but my my kind of thoughts are, how do you get a style? If you don't have a starting point, mm. how do you develop a style? So I've always said, look, get out there, photograph, you know, in a, in a way that you think Leibovitz did. Try to copy that picture because you never will because we're all different. There'll always be something that you do is different without even being conscious that you're doing it different. Your, your, your mind will just make you do it different because that's what it prefers. Yeah. And then from that, your style comes out. And very often, there's sort of, there are a lot of, ha- sort of happy accidents along the way yeah. that will yeah. sort of aid to your to developing your own style. Because, I mean, with the advent of YouTube, of course, now, you know, we have the opportunity to, to, to see behind-the-scenes videos. And mm-hmm. how often have I seen, uh, like, a, a behind-the-scenes thing and thinking, that's how they do it? Yeah, I thought they did it a completely really? different way. Yeah, it's like what yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Mm. And it's not too dissimilar from music. Like uh, Nick and myself, being musicians, um, as you develop as a musician, it's a similar thing. You copy other people. Clearly, that's what mm-hmm. you do on the guitar. You learn how yeah. to play. I don't know Eddie Van Halen songs, and you learn how to play, you know, uh, Steve Vai stuff, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then. 15 years down the line, you've taken all of these ingredients and you cooked up your own broth. And that's what is you in the end. Exactly. You know, and so coming back to what we were talking about at the beginning, this opportunity to go out during this pandemic and do things differently, it's really just a really great opportunity. Just go and grab these additional, Mm -hmm. you know, um, ingredients to just heat up your own photography in that way. Yeah. Do something. Yeah. Exactly. So how did you get started in photography in the first place? Uh, it kind of progressed really from doing the, I started out as the, the researcher kind of thing. So I was working with Photoshop and then mm-hmm. uh, long story short, I got kind of fed up of people thinking there was a make it look brilliant filter in Photoshop, which we know there isn't. Um, so got a, got a camera and kind of went from there really. I wanted mm-hmm. to see it from uh, concept to print, you know, if you, if you like. Um and also it was a case of wanting a bit of longevity within the industry because I thought that if I was only the guy, I, I was only ever really known as the Photoshop guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I kind of saw that as having a bit of a shelf life uh, because software develops and for the mass market, it makes the ability to do things a lot easier. 
So is there the need for the people who need to, who do all that retouching? I mean, of course there is at the moment, but who knows what's happening in the future. Mm. Whereas the actual capturing of the image, I saw there being longevity in that. And I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to see it all the way through from start to finish. When I, when I think of some of the images I used to work on that I'd get sent over, I mean, I remember on one of the jobs I had for the front of the Radio Times front cover, I had to make Alan Sugar look a year older um, because he wasn't available for the photo shoot for the next series of The Apprentice. So I had to kind of make the lines a bit deeper and grey the hair a little bit more and all that kind of, and even draw a table that he was sat at. So it was a different table. Um, I bet he loved being made to look older. Yeah, I had to work on a picture of, there's a programme, there was a programme called Most Haunted. Right. Um, And a lady called Yvette Fielding and she had, uh, the pictures (laughs) I got sent over, she had this blonde wig on and it was just dead straight hair on the shoulders. But for some strange reason, when they did the photo shoot, they allowed, I don't know, I don't know who they made, they allowed the tea lady to come in and cut her fringe. Do you know what I mean? Because it was just unbelievable. So the job I had to do <laughs> the job, in Photoshop, the job I had to do was tidy her hair up. Yeah. It's like, there's got to be more to life than this. Yeah. So then start taking the pictures. Do you know what I mean? So that's how it kind of went from there. It's amazing. There's a, uh, there's a great lot of um, Photoshop tutorials on your YouTube channel as well. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I used to, I mean, I've always liked sharing stuff like that. I, I think if you, the more you share, it kind of, the knock-on of that is that it kind of, it, it develops you as well. Do you yep. know what I mean? Because you're always looking for new ways of doing stuff. But yeah, I, I did share, I shared quite a lot. Um, yeah, I just enjoyed doing it really. It's just quite a nice thing to do. I had a break from doing it for a while because YouTube started to feel like a job. Mm-hmm. Um, so I took a break from it and now I'm back on again doing these, um, weekly videos about the landscape stuff and there'll be more, more Photoshop stuff now. I mean, I'm in a different place now, different place mentally when it comes to how I feel about photography and really touching. So I'm happier to po- get back into posting stuff on there now. You know, that in, in a previous life I used to do, um, uh, a lot of training and whatnot in the, the company I worked for and yeah. there truly is no better way to learn than to teach there really yes. really is it, and i to this day i stand by that and i still feel mm-hmm. the same you know even yeah even if you're amazing at what you do there may be little aspects that you're you just do because you that's how you do it and you've always done it and you may not yeah. remember the reasoning behind it or anything mm-hmm. like that and it's, when you then teach it you need to know all of that and it forces Absolutely. you to recalibrate how you think about things i, I, I love it it's the best way I've just, uh, like I mentioned at the start, I've literally last week I finished writing the latest book and that's been, that has, I've learned a lot doing that because obviously when you're writing a book about, I mean, this one's on selections and stuff, you have to really dive deep into the menus to make sure that you cover everything. And on quite a few occasions when I'm writing it, I'm going into certain areas in Photoshop and going, what the hell does that do? I've never used that. And then clicking, oh, hello, I like that. So I've been learning stuff while I've been writing the book as well, So, yeah. which was good in some ways because it was more content, but bad in some ways because it meant I had to write more. So there you go. You know, it, it is little things like that. I, I just, it sounds so silly, but I only really recently came across the mixer brush in uh, yeah. in Photoshop. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I thought, like, how have I not seen that before? <laughs> what? Yeah. What an amazing yeah. tool! <laughs> that wasn't in my version. Definitely, not. I would have nef- I would have noticed that for sure. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's, I remember the first time I, I learned how to use the history brush. See that? I don't use that. Maybe I should. I, I 
I use that. I tell you what, the only thing I use that for currently is um, in retouching uh, somebody's backs under the eyes. And yeah. I find a really, really useful uh, tool for that. But it's just, you know, the, the whole the whole idea of it had never crossed my mind beforehand because it was always mm-hmm. like one of these tools that, well, I just don't use and therefore you don't, you know, if it doesn't. There's so much in there. The great thing about Photoshop is it kind of, you can use it in a way that suits your workflow. You know, there's, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, you get people saying, oh, you know, that's the wrong way of doing it. Well, actually, no, it's not. I still got the same result, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know exactly. What I mean? like, you know, when I left school, I used to be a plasterer. And, you know, I used to work on the building sites in Wolverhampton. And you know, I, when you're doing the plastering, my technique for plastering was you'd start at the bottom of the trowel and go up, down, up. Whereas the bloke I worked with started at the top and went down, up, down. We've still got the same result. We just used <laughs> uh, the yeah. tools differently. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's an interesting thing. Because, of, of course, in Photoshop, you know, there's, there's about five different ways that you can do just about anything in there. Mm. And um, it always depends on so many different things. It depends on what your own workflow is and how, which order you like to do things in yeah. um, and what just works for you. And once in a while, you come across a different way of doing things that might actually, you know, shave off five minutes of, of your mm-hmm. editing time. And you mm-hmm. go, oh, I want to do it this way from now on, because actually yeah. there's an advantage in it for me. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Because obviously, I mean, somebody retouching um, like a, an architectural shot or something, that's going to be very different from from retouching, you know, a headshot, for mm. example. So, you know, it's, it's such a flexible software. Definitely, yeah. Love it. And um, I'd say we, uh, at some point early on in the pandemic, we, we set up like a Zoom group um, on a Tuesday night where, uh, where, where people, photographers would come together and we would just chat about creative things and, you know, some ideas as to what we could do around the house, you know, or how we could just keep the creative juices flowing. Mm-hmm. And that then developed into um, almost like a Photoshop tutorial group every every Tuesday night, where I would pick anything in Photoshop and and teach people how to do a particular technique or something like that. And it's, it's just like you mentioned earlier, it was really just a matter of like having to really deep dive into this. Although it was just a two-hour sort of tutorial kind of a thing, yeah. it was like, ah, okay. I have to really look at all of these new features, mm. you know, that Photoshop have brought out. Like, what a great, what a great idea for a group! I wish I'd have thought of doing something like that with like the email group, where you say, right, I tell you what, on this night we're going to meet up. If anybody's got anything they want to share on how to do that, let's share yeah. your screens, and that's a really good thing to do. Yeah, yeah we started this because um, about maybe four or five, six weeks into the the first lockdown, um, right. I got a lot of, I saw a lot of comments of like friends. Um, on Facebook and I got a lot of messages and whenever I spoke to people was, you know, the vibe was always the same. It's like, man, I've been sitting around for six weeks. My camera's been in the bag. I haven't taken it out once because I can't go out and shoot animals or wildlife or, or landscapes as I would normally do. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and when you hear that from one person, it's like, it's okay. You know, but when you start hearing it from multiple people and everybody seems to be sitting around at home watching Netflix all day, Kind of mm. thinking, you know, being frustrated with the fact that they, that they seemingly, you know, can't do the things that they're used to. You can think, okay, well, well, maybe we should just all talk about it because it looks mm. like we're all in the same boat here, you know. Yeah. Um, and that really, I mean, initially it was just like right, a bunch of people getting together on Zoom, you know, talking about it. And um, what became very apparent very quickly was that somebody would have some idea, and everybody else went, "Oh, that's a really good idea." Let's try that. Was, mm-hmm. um, I remember one person um, on the on the call once mentioned that, 
Oh, I've just shot, I've just found light pockets in my house and I photographed those. And I'm thinking that's a, that's a really good idea. Everybody's got windows. Everybody knows, you know, that you, you always know like in your house when the sun is at a certain place at a certain time, you always think like, oh, that's really cool light coming through this window. And it's, it look, it always looks cool, you know, like yeah. because it's a south facing window, whatever. And, but I'd never thought, oh, maybe I place something in that light. And when that happens, I photograph it because that might actually make a good picture. And again, mm-hmm. it's something, you know, it's something to do. And then this group just developed, um, into like, I don't know, photography Q&A type of a thing. And, and eventually it sort of morphed into, um, into a Photoshop. <laughs> the, the, Zo- the Zoom thing has been a real blessing, hasn't it, over this last year? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you guys utilising Zoom there, camera clubs utilising it. It's, you know, it's, and families getting to see each other. I think that, you know, there's so many, I was talking to somebody about this last night. There's been so many positives come out of it. Yeah, there's a lot of negatives. Yeah. If we really kind of really put our grumpy head on, we can think a load of negatives, but the yeah. positives, and there's, you know, there's, there's technophobes out there who've embraced this video conferencing now to be able to short chat and going forward when this is all behind us, they're going to continue mm. doing that. So that's, that alone is a, is a great thing. There's people using technology they wouldn't have done, you know? Absolutely. And you mentioned camera clubs. I'm a member of a local camera yeah. club. And I remember I remember vividly at the very beginning of lockdown, it was like, all right, we're going to have to stop our meetings. We won't be able to meet. Um, who knows when we're getting back? And I remember saying, we're going back next Thursday. That's what we're going to do. Mm. If we're going to do on Zoom. And it was like, oh, yeah, but you have to have a subscription. And so I have a subscription. I'm going to run it. Like, you mm. know, 7.30 on Thursday. See you all there. Here's the link. And that's how we started. That's how we started. And of course, yeah. as an end result, now the opportunity in there was that now all of a sudden you could have speakers, you know, on the like in the meeting doing mm-hmm. presentations from all over the world. Yeah, like yeah. From, you know, we had speakers from Ireland and I think from Canada and you know from Scotland, and that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. And so it's I with- opened up my I opened up my calendar to do uh, camera club meetings because so I'd stopped doing them. Mm-hmm. Because of the travel and stuff like that, but I opened yeah. them up pretty pretty early on, and I did a presentations for I think about eighty last year camera clubs because mm. it was easy doing it from home. Only yeah. once did I get the time zone wrong, and I presented to America. I had to do it at three a.m. Oh no! So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how did yeah. that go down? <laughs> well, they were fine. I was yeah. uh, I don't know how I appeared. Maybe yeah. a little bit dreary, but yeah, I made sure from then on check the time zone changer in I in uh, Calendly. Yeah. Well, see, we we have that sometimes because we we have um, international guests on on this show, um, and of course, then you know it's a the time zone thing. So what what usually happens is it's usually evening for us when it is like sort of morning for them. Yeah. And for me, being stuck in a house with three kids, you know, and, and my wife and everything, it always means like, okay, guys. The living room is out of bounds. <laughs> you know, you're gonna have to find something else to do for a couple of hours because we're recording. But it's just, you know, it's just how it is. Mm. But yeah, well, you know, I think there are elements of that 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 I think will be useful even when mm. things go back. Because the yeah. the idea of having speakers uh, being able to present either from from all over the world is that's that's really a that's a great asset. Oh, absolutely. Does it kind of, it completely changes what's possible now, doesn't it? Whereas looking for somebody within the same country to drive a couple of hours or whatever now, yeah. do they really need to? I, I mean, it's always lovely to do stuff in person. You can't beat that. Mm. But Zoom is, damn, it's, it's a pretty good alternative. Yeah. It really is. 
So have you had time to think of um, any more, any other sort of personal projects along the lines of the veteran? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, like I said, the veteran one's always going to go on. I will continue doing this landscape one because that's great. That's a, a personal development thing for me. But now that we're in Devon, there is a, a new venture which I'll be starting. And it's called, it's all the design work's been done for it. The websites are all ready. And it's called Totally Devon. So um, I'm going to be touring the whole county for the next couple of years, photographing uh, the, the kind of the, the kind of catchphrase for it is the people, the places, and the produce that makes Devon Devon. Oh, okay. so it's going to involve taking portraits of, you know, the, the, the people who, you know, the farmers, the the fishmongers, the fishermen, the cheesemakers, the cider makers, uh, photographing the actual produce as well, and then also going out and photographing the landscape. Mm. So. And I, I, my my goal is that in about 18 months, two years' time, there'll be exhibitions across Devon to showcase it all. But there'll also be a website where um, select suppliers and whatever from across the county can advertise through the through the site as well. So it's going to be like a, a a Devon hub is what I want to create for it. But get it get it kind of known out there first because of the photography side of things and also the video side of things because there'll be quite a lot of video on it as well. So. Hmm. Um, because there's no point trying to build something without anybody knowing who the hell you are anyway. I might as well spend the next year, two, well, year and a half, two years, getting out in, into the county to show people, right, this is what I do, and then go from there. What a great idea. What sparked that interest in the first place to start that project? I wish I could I wish I could tell you. It just it just came to me, it just came to my head that I want to do that. I want to go and photograph the people, the places, and the produce and and then I, once my head got into it, I then came up with the idea of what it would include, what, how I could then do the website. And I don't know. I think I'm always looking, I'm always looking for the next thing, Nick. Do yeah. you know what I mean? I mean and where the next thing doesn't mean that they, the other things stop. It just means it's an addition to it. Um, and I, it quite excites me. It's another excuse to get out there rather yeah. than photographing solely, you know, the veterans for a veterans project. This is going to mean me photographing anybody and everybody that makes Devon Devon and I and there's some real characters that's what I love about this county there's some proper characters you know the the sort of Devonian just wonderful people and like I said at the start you know I I don't photograph models I want to photograph characters and this is a great way to do it love it love it and you know if you think you know down the line that could do wonders for Devon in, in itself right and for tourism if you you know depending on where you want to take that whole project in in the future right yeah, you yeah. could even ugh, expand it to other counties as well at some well, point do you know what i i yeah i guess so I, mean, I think i'd probably stick with Devon. but if there's other people who had their counties that they wanted to then i'm in a position to be able to show them how to do it yeah i mean this is what i would suggest you do but i've kind of i want to really you know, I'm, we've moved to Devon. We've always wanted to. I want to just absorb myself in Devon and be part of Devon. I mean, I've, you know, I've got BBC Devon want me to do a video for them next week. And that's just brilliant to show people how to get out there with your phone to do stuff. So I, I just want to get out and do as much uh, within this county as I possibly can because, you know, we've wanted it for years. I want to be really absorbed in it. And for those uh, viewers and listeners um, who are maybe not aware of where Devon is in the UK, if you're an international listener, um, Devon is is one of these really beautiful um, counties in the south of England that's really full of what I would call almost as as a you know as a foreigner myself, I would call it like the sort of archetypical uh, English countryside 
yeah, type it is. of it's, county. It's, right? it's like going back in you know, a certain parts of Devon. It's like stepping back in time. It mm, really yeah. is. It's unspoiled. It's just beautiful coast, beautiful greenery and, you know, countryside, little villages, the quaint little villages and stuff. So, yeah, it is, It is. you know, it's, it's a special place. I love it. Yeah. Yes, rolling hills, um, stone walls. And what did Bure Perry say? <laughs> People take their Shetland ponies for a walk. That's true. <laughs> Yeah, we get, we get with somebody walking there past here. We do really? get that. Yeah, uh, yeah, we do. Seriously, honestly, we do. Yeah. Right, if you watch, if you are watching this episode, let me tell you, it actually does happen. It does happen. Definitely does happen. Yeah. Also, yeah. a lot of good ale around in Devon. I think there is. Yeah, there's a lot of good microbreweries around, local yeah. ones as well. So yeah, I ate, um, it- as I was saying just before we we came on air that I went down to Devon last year for a mm. week with with some friends and mm. um, I've remembered where it is or rather my oh, friends told me where it was. It was at Meeshore. Meeshore. I have heard of Meeshore. Near oh, South Moulton. Oh, South Moulton's 15 minutes away. Yeah. yeah. So I told you we, oh, we, we, right, okay. we would have been close. Wow. Okay. Yeah. 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 And I, yeah. all I ate was cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you. Week's worth of cheese. Amazing. There you go. And that's that's why you're running now, Nick. That's exactly what she's. Get rid of this. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, Me, sure. I'm going to look that up now. It can only be down the road, so. Yeah, it's literally just, just around the corner. And, you know, I only saw that little bit. And as I was saying before we before we came in air, that actually I can't remember the last time I'd been down to that, that mm. anywhere near that region. Yeah. And my God, of all the counties in this country to live in and of all the counties for you to be able to go out over the next couple of years and photograph and video, mm. I'm slightly envious, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, Amazing looking place. Looking forward to it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Devon and Somerset, are, those are the two counties Devon, that Somerset, are... Devon, Somerset, Cornwall. Oh, Cornwall, yeah. Okay, mm. in, when you're in this country, you can't say Somerset without saying it with an accent. You have to say yeah. Somerset. 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 <laughs> Somerset. What's it? What's a Devon or Devonian accent? How does that? How does that work? I'm not even going to attempt it because <laughs> there could be a Devonian listening to this at some oh, point who will just chastise me. So uh, no. <laughs> You, I, I'll send. I'll send you a link. I'll send you a link to something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, it's always. It, that's always. It's always tricky. Um, I tell you what. When I first moved to the UK, um, I had a real problem with, with some of like I had a real problem understanding some of the accents. I wasn't really aware. Just I think like many foreigners, I think you know, uh, you know, quite naturally when you think of the UK, it's you think of London and then then you think of Miss Marple when it comes to the rest of it, you know? <laughs> and uh, and so I was never aware that there are so many different mm. accents in like, you know, all these different counties. Um, that was a real, that's a real eye-opener. Yeah, yeah. And it yeah. makes life super interesting, actually. I love people's accents, you know. It's always one of these, it's one of these things. And I love um, looking at photography as well and trying to work out where in the country that was taken. You know, when you see right, like, okay. when you yeah. see like a landscape shot, um, and I mean, not being much of a landscape photographer myself, by the way, but I do have an interest in landscape photography because I love looking at the images. Yeah. You know, it's just, I think in the past, and I'm a little bit older now, so things are maybe a little bit different. Uh, but in the past, I always used to think like, you know, I have no problem with like staying up until four four o'clock in the morning shooting a gig, <laughs> but I really can't get myself to get up at four o'clock in the morning to sit in a field, to look in a tree, 
to wait for the sun to be the sun space to take one photo, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't mind that. I'm a morning person, so I can right. I can I can deal with that. He says at the moment when the summer comes and it gets brighter really early, it could yeah. be a different story, but mm. I'll be a sunset photographer then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but has um has taking uh, sort of landscape imagery um throughout the pandemic, has that really allowed you to discover the, the Devon countryside as well at the same time? Um yeah, I mean <sighs> I, I, yeah, it has in certain areas, but what? Even though I'm, I'm a, you know, we we got move, we can move around if it's for work purposes. Right. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I, being a lot of what I do is getting out there doing photos and creating content. I can go off and do stuff all over the place. However, mm-hmm. entering into the spirit of the things, I've not wanted to do that because it mm-hmm. can just, it can annoy people, and it's almost yeah. like showing off. Yeah. So I've I've kept very local. Um, but even being very local, there's, there's so much to discover. I mean, I, you know, spending more time in, in the same place, like there's one particular woodland I go to and I go there quite a bit. Every time I go there, I see something different. And I, I I did like an analogy yesterday. I did a little quick FaceTime, uh, live video, Facebook live video yesterday when I was there. And I kind of described it as almost like peeling the layers of an, you know, peeling the skin off an orange, of of an onion. As you, the first time you go there, you peel off, you see certain much. You peel up, you're there longer, you take another thing, and you see even more and even more and even more. So it's kind of like the spending time there. It's amazing how you start to notice more things. Hmm. Um, so I don't, and that's why I kind of said at the start, you don't have to go for miles to get the great photos. It's amazing if you can just keep revisiting certain places in your local area, and it's amazing what you'll see each time you go back. You'll see new mm. things and you'll see the things that you saw before, but in a slightly different way as exactly, well. Exactly, because if the weather's different, you know, yeah. the lighting's different, it can completely change what could potentially be quite a dull location. If you get the right lighting, mm. it can change it dramatically. So, yeah. So, Glenn, you also, um, you sell um, sort of sell tutorials and training courses as, as well, right? And uh, yeah. um, if I remember correctly, you also sell one that's on um, on your timeless look that's right and how yeah. you go about that as well um yeah so could you tell us just a little bit about about that course and you know how that came about and why you decided to sell that as a training course because that was a look that became popular with the projects and people asking a lot of times how do you mm. do it how are you lighting it what's the editing how are you color grading it i just decided to put a tutorial together because you know i knew i knew it would be popular and it has proven popular but so there's that side of it but also I, I'm, you know, I, I can't be in every place. I, I can't be everywhere. So by people knowing that, how to do that particular thing that I'm doing with veterans, they can then, if they know a veteran, they can go and do it if they want to do it in a similar style or at least start it in that style and then do their own little tweak to it. So, and it, and it also, it kind of goes back to the fact that I just like, I like sharing stuff. You know, I'll, I'll say it again. To the, the best way to learn and develop is to is to teach. Right, there's those three stages of mm. you know learning how to do something, put it in practice yourself, and then that final stage of teaching someone else to really cement mm. everything that you know about it. And that's yeah, that's yeah, I love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to um, talk about your your latest book that you've just just finished. Can mm-hmm. you know what? Tell us about the topic, uh, or can you share much about what? Yeah, what's yeah, in definitely. That book? And, and when can we expect to to see it? It's uh, well, the book itself is called the Photoshop Layers and Selections Workshop. So, um, selections is something that I've always had a 
strange fascination with really. I've always liked the challenge of doing selections. And whenever I've done classes uh, at functions either here in the UK or abroad or whatever, I've always been asked, could you do a session on, on doing selections? <laughs> so I thought it was about time that I did a book on it. Um, so the book itself, there's a, there's like a layers, but really that's kind of done in a way to make sure that you understand what we're then going to be doing in the selection side of it. So then the selections takes you through pretty much not everything because there is, like we've said already, there's so much in Photoshop anyway, but I would say the vast majority of the kind of stuff you would need to know when it comes to making selections in Photoshop. Mm. But then as well as that, I've put in a few workarounds because you, it's, it's all well and good teaching people, this is a certain tool, you know, here's the magnetic lasso tool, here's the polygonal lasso tool, and mm. here's select and mask, and here's select subject. You can teach them how to use those, and they will work brilliantly on the right image. But if you go to use it on an image where it doesn't work, what do you do then? Well, you need to know, I think, how to use the tools together and techniques together to end up with the result that you ultimately wanted. Mm. So what I've included in the book is a, a chapter on workflow, saying, right, here's an image. This is how I made the selection. So I started using this, then I had to do that, and then I did this. This is why I did it, and this is what it did, and so on and so forth. So to give people the idea of, ah, oh, right, having that mentality of what would happen if I did that. So... Um, yeah, that's that's basically what the book is. I'm really, I'm honestly, I, I am genuine. I'm not just saying this because it's my book. I want people to buy it. Of course, I do. But I'm, I, I'd like to think I've built a reputation on trust, and I am genuinely happy with the content in the book. Very happy with it, especially the workflow section and the chapter on the pen tool, because I know the pen tool can be a real. Uh, headache for people yeah. to get their head around. So I've done. A, I'm really pleased with how that's worked out. As for timing, Nick, as to when it'll come out, it's all been submitted. So now the the team at Rocking Up kind of start doing their bit, doing the proofreading, sending back the edits for me to have a look at, and then the page layout. I think Amazon at the moment says June 29th, but I know that won't happen because uh, it's just the way the book world is. So I think we're looking at August time for it to be available. Yeah. Um, and that's probably going to be in the US, and then it filters out across the rest of the world the following month. I love absolutely love that. And you know, I, Kay, I don't know about you, but I I certainly find selection one of the toughest things to do, mm. especially to hair. do it well in um, in Photoshop. And I, I struggle mm. time and time again to the point where, on occasion, I'll just stop. And I'll just go, I'll do something else with the photo instead of selecting and, and doing <laughs> yeah, whatever I need yeah, to yeah. do. You know, and that's that's, yeah, that's yeah. a shame. That's my lack of knowledge of what each of the tools can do. And like mm. you say, how to use them in conjunction with others. So what a fantastic topic to do it on because yeah. there there's a yeah. billion topics you could have done it on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the book before it was layer masks, brushes and blend modes, which are the three things I think you need to learn. That was in the book before called The Toolbox. Mm. But this one... My only concern with this, and I actually emailed the publishers the other night, was to say, look, you know, if we have August, September time as a release date, October we'll have Adobe Max, which invariably means big launches from uh, big updates from Adobe, of which I know there are a couple of things coming with selections. So my 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 thoughts were, look, how do we keep this book up to date? And you can't really keep a book up to date now with the, the way that software is updated so frequently. So what we're going to be doing is when there are updates... I'll be writing additional sections which people who've got the book can download from Rocky Nook. 
so that it's, it's, it's going nice. to be kept up to date that particular way. So, well, especially well, when it comes to selecting hair and fur, um, I mean, yeah. a, a, Adobe's oh. come on leaps and bounds over the last oh, massive, five years yeah. or something. You know, mm. um, especially in the most recent um, update, I remember this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the hair selection, like the automated hair selection, has gotten so mm-hmm. much better. Um, that really does help me as a as a headshot photographer all the time, especially when we're talking about like corporate headshots where you get to change out the the background, for example, and change the color of the background mm-hmm. and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So that's going to be extremely useful. And I know this is like one of the hardest um, hardest kind of tasks for anybody to get into is selecting things like hair. Yeah. You know, I mean, so. you've, you've definitely got someone here who's going to buy it. I assure you. <laughs> that, that'll go, honestly. It'll do me wonders. Um, something I did want to ask, Clint, is why, um, uh, why did you decide to do something like that in the form of a book as opposed to a, a video tutorial or explanation or set of videos, I should say, more than anything else? What what, what swayed you to go more towards the book, book route? Um. Well, I've, I've done some classes recently. I did the uh, the Kelby One Conference and the Photoshop Summit. I did classes, video classes on selections, and they proved really popular. Mm. So uh, that's what made me think, right, maybe do a book on this. So the book will be coming out, but then around about the time as well, there will be some video stuff content put out as well. Okay. So people have got the choice between both because, you know, people there are people who prefer the written word there are people who prefer video there are people who like both so the idea is it's kind of like hopefully it'll catch all there yeah um yeah people learn differently i think that's that's an important thing to bear in mind yeah absolutely and i I find i learn differently depending on what it is i want to learn as well Mm. if i just want a quick tip oh god how do you do that again how do you do that Mm. how do you do it a video tutorial style is perfect for me it works really well however if i want to learn an entire topic let's say i find reading it um in a book form i I learn better that way it also depends what mindset i'm in the way i want to learn something Mm. you know like because i've got i'm learning more and more and more about premiere pro and after effects and i'm loving it and I'll, i'll go on to skillshare and places like that to learn that but I've also got books on Premiere because sometimes I just want to sit on the sofa and have a read. Yeah. So it's, it's catch-all, really. Yeah. Let, and let me just the- say at this at this point, Skillshare, if you are interested in sponsoring this video, then you know, go right ahead. But actually, Ken, <laughs> one one question that's always interested me um, when it comes to to books of that nature is how long does it take? Like, how long does the process take um, from the <laughs> initial, you know, the initial kind of inception to when it's on the shelf? Right. If if Rocky Nook are listening to this, it takes months. Right. It takes a lot of writing, planning, and doing a little bit every day. However, the reality is most of the author friends I've got as well are the same. Mm-hmm. It's always down to the wire. So I would say, although I knew what content was going to be in the book because I'd planned it all and drawn it all out and I knew exactly what was going to be in there, mm-hmm. the actual writing of the book took me 10 days. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because I'd literally just committed myself. Nothing else was going to be done for 10 days. This is what I meant at the start about me being on a lockdown. That's it. Everything else is going to have to wait. I am now completely writing the book from morning till night. Mm. And that's what I did. And yeah, and I think I did that with Toolbox as well. Mm. I, I'm, I, kinda, I, I seem to work well when there's a bit of pressure. And I knew that I had to get it done. And um, it kind of just went from there really. But yeah, I just, yeah. How, how does it normally work? I mean, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting topic, I think, because 
Um, not many people really get an insight into like the world of, of book creation generally. Mm -hmm. Is it that the um, the publisher gives you a deadline and basically says like, okay, by the, I don't know, 28th of March or something, you have to deliver, Yeah, you know, a, Like it, it, it does. It varies from publishing house to publishing house. I mean, when I when I did a book for Peach Pit Press, they worked differently in by where where they would say right every time you submitted a chapter, then you kind of like would get a, a payment of if you like an advance ah. payment, and that that was an incentive then to be able to say right I'll get a chapter done this week, so that's another payment coming in and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. Whereas with Rocky Nook, it's a case of, right, if you want the book to be out by that time of year, that means the draft needs to be in at the very latest by this time. And there is a considerable time that they give you. Mm. Um, but, th I mean, Rocky Nook are a lovely, lovely company to write for. I know them really, really well. They're Scott and Ted, who are like heads, they're good friends. And as long as you, as long as they know that you aren't taking the mick, you know, and you are working hard on it, they will give you an extension to an extent. But really, you don't want to have an extension because you want your book to be out there. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, you get you get you get the deadlines, and it's good to have a deadline because you, you've got to have a, a date to work to, mm. otherwise it'll never happen. Yeah. How once you've done that that draft, Glenn, I've, I've always been quite interested because if you think about you know novels and things like that, they have editors that will then go through it and mm -hmm. help help the uh, the author with you know the final kind of version. But yep. when you've got a book that's technical. And mm -hmm. in that side, they may well not have anyone that's versed in Photoshop at all, for example. How, how does that well, editing process it, work? Or does it not well, really happen? It, it doesn't really happen. Like, I mean, Rocking Up themselves, are they specialise in educational books. So when you're, when you're going to write a book, you have all the kind of like the meetings that you ordinarily would do and you get assigned a team of people. There's about six people assigned to you, which are then involved in the creation of your book. Um, and you get an editor. Now, my editor's Jocelyn. She's amazing. So I would submit stuff to her. And her way of editing it and proofreading it is she knows a way around Photoshop, but she she would put on her beginner's head mm -hmm. and she'd have all the images and she'd have what I've written. And she will follow it, everything, throughout the whole book, step by step by step. And if she encounters somewhere along the line, oh, that didn't work. Why didn't that work? Oh, Glenn, you, that step there, I think you meant to say this. You might want to change that. So the fact that you have somebody who literally goes from cover to cover, going through everything that you've done, is a is a real safety net. I mean, sometimes things do slip through that net, sure. and you know there are some things that get missed. But in the second print, that's when those things are changed and and what have you. Yeah, it's it's a it's a fantastic process. You know, you send it all in, then Jocelyn or whoever your editor is will then start doing the stuff, sending it back to you with certain edits, with like. You know, Mark saying, what does that mean? Change this, you've missed an image there, so on and so forth. You then send that back and then it goes to the the page layout and the design team and then you get drafts back. It's, it's, it's fantastic. Really, once you've sent it in, it gets really exciting because you start yeah. to see it all coming together. Is it easy sometimes to kind of lose track when, let's say, if you're aiming a book at a relative beginners, for example, but of course you're coming at it from sort of an expert position. Is it easy, uh, is it easy sometimes to to lose track of um, who who the end audience or the fun audiences and get too far yeah, ahead? Yeah, in, in some ways, Kirsten, it, it, it could do. Hmm. Uh, but I think because I've done quite a lot of teaching, you, you, you do know where to pitch it. And hmm. I've kind of learned not to take for, or not to take for granted what I know. Do you know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. what I might think is a basic, well, surely people know that. I don't need to say that. Anyway, carry on. I've learned that you can't take for granted that you know how to open an image. Mm 
<laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because I know a very good friend of mine, Jesus Ramirez, when he he runs the Photoshop training channel, when he first taught at Adobe Max, his first ever class, he got a little bit of a bad rating because some people complained that it wasn't pitched at them. And he's like, but I, I, it was really quite simple. But when looking at some of their feedback is, he had an image opening Photoshop. He didn't tell us how to open an image. Wow. Okay, so we've got to pitch it like that. So mm. it, it's very difficult to to sort of pitch it for everybody. So you've got to try and find a middle ground. And maybe right mm. at the start of the book, you go to open an image, go file open. So then you say, right, we've done that now. For the rest of the book, you remember, right? File mm -hmm. open. So I don't have to keep repeating that. So it's that kind of a process. So, so this is your fourth book, is that correct? Mm-hmm, yeah. And um, there's, a, there's another book that we sort of... Um, mentioned a little bit earlier on, uh, Photograph Like a Thief, that I yep. loved the title of. <laughs> <laughs> what, was the, what, what was the sort of inspiration for that book? Um, wanting to show people how to develop a style, because that's what the, the whole idea of the book was, you know, the copying thing, find out certain images, teaching people how to uh, reverse engineer the lighting to say, well, I think they could have done this and then try to recreate your own version of it. And by copying again and again and again, that's where, you know, I've, having done it a lot, that's when your own style starts to come out. Mm. But the best way, I mean, you mentioned it earlier on, the best way of learning lighting is to reverse engineer it. Mm -hmm. So, so have you, you got any plans for, for future book releases? Yeah, I, yeah, I have actually. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all kinds of ideas, but I'm, I'm also going to be doing some smaller um pdf ebook download type of things on the website as well sort of mm. bite-sized little books create like a little series of a few things as well so mm. some of the classes that i've done on video formats again some people like you said nick what made you go for that book format over a video format mm. well there's some videos out there that need to be put into book format so i'll, mm -hmm. be, I'll be converting those and putting them onto the site as well so people have got the choice between the two mm. now you're also an instructor for calby one Mm -hmm. um, how did that relationship uh, come together? Um, I kind of, I mean, long story short is that I, you know, years ago, as I, as I do now, I check out Scott Kelby's blog and rather than just reading it, I would, I would post a comment, I'd reply or give a thought about something. And that wasn't done with the intention of, oh, I hope he sees me. It was genuinely me wanting to, to sort of, you know, comment on stuff because if somebody's taken the time to write a blog post and compile one I think you know just add a little bit of a comment in there mm. um, and with that I, I then at that particular time I was starting to you know people were asking me to teach stuff so I started to do a few workshops I put, started to put some videos out there and then um, completely out of the blue true story I was sat in Costa Coffee in a place called Tame in Buckinghamshire. Know it well. And I'm, yeah. I'm sat in there having a, having a coffee the one day and my mobile phone rings. I didn't recognise the number, but it was an American number. And I answered it and I'm like, hello. And he goes, uh, hi, is that Glyn? Yeah, yeah. Hi, Glyn, it's Scott Kelby. Uh, uh, hello. Trying to be all calm and cool. Hello there. He says, Glyn, are you coming to Photoshop World this year? I said, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll be there. He said, oh, good, good. He said, can you do me a favour? I said, yeah. He said, will you teach for us? And I, and I honestly, hand on heart, I did this. I went, hold on one second. I put the phone against my chest here. And in the middle of Costas, which was busy, I went, ow. <laughs> <laughs> I really did. And then, and then I, yeah, 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 no problem at all. Yeah, he said, great stuff. I'll get my PA, Gene, to uh, get all the details over to you. Thanks. Looking forward to seeing you. And that was it. <laughs> um, you know, and sitting that, yeah, just, whoa, I didn't expect that. Um, 
So yeah, that's how it kind of started, really. Mm. So, but it was done, and you know, again, my kind of thing has been never to approach a company saying, "Please, can I work with you?" I've never wanted to do that. I've always wanted them to see you for the value that you have to say, "We'd like to work with you." So the fact that Scott did that was uh, was wonderful. It really was, and you know, I'm glad, I'm glad to say he's become a really good friend. So. Imagine that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no yeah. words. No I words. didn't get barred from Costa, thankfully, as well. <laughs> All the weird things that happen <laughs> at Costa Coffee. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wicked. So, um, so I've seen you've got a number of um, uh, the expo things coming up um, over the next couple of months. Um, I know you're, um, you're part of the, the Canem Photo Expo. Oh, there's the um, okay, I've got an aside here. There's a few things coming up. I know that there's the the Can-Am Expo in the States. I'm part of that, um, which I'm really looking forward to. Actually, I've got like, three classes I'm recording for that. Mm. There's obviously the photography show coming up this weekend, the Spring Fair. Got a class on that, which is an editing class. Yes, um, and there is something which hasn't been made public yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. There's a big conference coming to do with Lightroom. Oh, great. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to doing that because I'm doing a I'm doing some sessions on printing mm-hmm. and uh, time lapses. So oh, yeah, nice. looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. So again, topic. I mean, the time lapse one is a good one because it's just mm. something creative to do if you can't think of anything else to do. Get out there, do a time lapse. You know, it's yeah. a bit of fun. Put it into a video. But the printing side of things, I'm really quite looking forward to. Oh God, I almost said passionate. Then I hate that word. Um, uh, I'm really looking forward to doing that. So mm. teaching people how to do prints, get, make sure that what they want to print looks like what's on the screen. So, yeah, mm. I mean, printing is one of these things where I always think um, it's it's one of one of the things that very often in this day and age, and I'm talking probably predominantly about maybe younger photographers. It's one of the things that's forgotten about. Um, mm. a lot in this sort of digital age of, of photography. And um, I, I'm, I'm being totally honest, it was only when I joined a camera club, um, maybe three years ago or something, um, that that really came back to the forefront of my mind because, of course, there are lots of print competitions. And I remember initially thinking, why are there print competitions? Like, what year is this? You know, and then, <laughs> and then really falling in love with Mm. We're seeing photographs printed, you know, and framed and everything else. Um, is that something you, you you do a lot of printing? I do. I pretty much every picture that I every image that I finish will get printed every right. single time. Mm. Um, and there's and somebody actually asked me that this morning on social media. What do you do with all the prints? A lot of them go into like a, an art folder. I've got like a big zip case thing that I'll put them in just to keep them. Mm. Um, and some will go on the wall, but obviously not all. But the, the value of a print is not just a case of, oh, I really like that. It's lovely printed, that is. Mm. It, it will help you to grow as a photographer. And it will also help your editing as well. Because I know I was chatting to, the, I know Katrine Eisman. I don't know if you know Katrine. She's just amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she said to me, she's always, she's a very wise woman, Katrine. She said, the truth, that you, you see the truth when you print the image. Mm-hmm. Because a screen can kind of hide things because of the different contrast levels and brightness levels and all that kind of stuff. Once it's printed, that's when you see the truth. Any any kind of defects, anything, any issues, you will see them in a print. So th- being out, having that helps you to improve. But I, I'm, I'm a massive advocate of printing. I love it. It's nothing better. Who wants to spend all that money on kit and time learning for somebody to just look through a digital vi- device and go, that's mm. nice, that's nice, that's yeah. nice. Look at the reaction. I mean, I can see, you know, you've got prints on the walls behind both of you there. Mm. When you have a print, 
and you give it to somebody, what do they do with it? They don't just go, oh, that's nice and put it down. Mm. They walk around with it. They put it in different light. They bring it closer, further away. It's, it's much more tactile. The re- response, you know, the response is how it should be. Mm. You know what I mean? It's, 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 a, it's an art, isn't it? And they're holding a piece of art in their hand rather than just flicking past it in the screen. Absolutely. It even, if adds- you take, even if you take it to its most basic level, I remember as a kid, I used to look through family photo albums. I used to sit there. And look through them every so mm. often and flick, mm. you know, t- 10 of them or whatever there was. Mm. I can't remember last time I flicked through my photos in my photos app and whatnot. Well, I think isn't it great happen. when you do, yeah. though? If you dug out the photo albums now and sat on the floor in the front room and had them all out, it's a great evening. It's yeah. a yeah. really good evening looking through stuff. You know, that's, I've thought this many times. It's how the few images that I've printed, because I, I don't print at home. And so I use a lab um, in town uh, to do all my printing for for me. And uh, every time I get a print back, it just adds another dimension and another totally. meaning to that to that image. You know, and I've found that digital images are great and everything, but they just turn into one out of literally tens of thousands mm-hmm. of photos on my photo app or in my Lightroom catalog. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and printing something, just it just kind of, it's like the final process, you know, the final mm-hmm. part of creating an image. This is, And this is what I've learned. You know, and I'm really a child of, of the digital photography age. Um, and I really had to kind of, re- not regress, but I really had to t- uh, turn around and, and take a step back and reevaluate um, really, to, you know, in order to, to really appreciate prints again, mm-hmm. this one very something that really fascinates me, uh, and this is this might be something that that happens in Devon a lot, but every time I go to an English pub and you see these photographs on the wall, this is for some reason I seem to find them in, in British pub or in English pubs all the time, of like you know the high street back in eighteen oh the, the bygone era yeah. yeah the bygone era thing I find that so fascinating yeah you know, i love all that stuff especially in like local you know local pubs for example you think like oh that's is that rickman's yeah. high street yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah and you're trying yeah. to work out like oh that building is now a, i don't know a co-op and you know yeah. back then it used to be uh, i don't know a green grocers or whatever it used to be yeah back then yeah i just find it's the most fascinating experience mm-hmm. and if it wasn't for prints if that was all digital The the value of the of a print is immense. It really is. Mm. It's way more than just having something in your hand. It does it does something. It helps you to grow for definite, and it's a completely different reaction when you give it to somebody. So it's a win win. It really is. And as a photographer, it's such a skill as well to be able to print things well. Mm. Um, That is also something I personally have learned um, very much. Is is that that was really a skill set I did not have. You know, when I first when I first joined the, the the local camera club, and I'm looking at some of those prints, I'm thinking, this is like really hard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I guess you would encourage younger photographers to to uh, you know get into printing and to keep printing their hmm. their work. Definitely, yeah. I mean, it's it's a bit of an investment. Uh, I, I always say I'd, I'd prefer to do it myself, so you see it all the way through and you learn more doing it that way. But if you use a use a lab, that's still good. You know what I mean? Just make sure, make whatever you do and however you do it, just make sure you do prints. So, do you use a lab or do you do it yourself? Uh, up to certain sizes, I do it all myself. So at the moment, <laughs> I do up to A3 plus on the one you can see on my shoulder. Uh, I am going to be getting a, a, a bigger printer, so that'll go to like A2, something like that. Mm-hmm. But then for those occasions where I need something big, like we had at the the exhibition um, at the end of 19 into 20, 
then then I'll use a lab. Um, and there is a certain lab that I've I've really you know good relationship with. They know how my images look. The guy there is just unbelievable. So it's not a case of me just uploading it to a faceless company. I, I know these people, mm. and they kind of know what I like. So. Mm. And that's important. Develop a relationship with a printer, like develop a relationship with the framers. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's uh, that sort of thing. I think that sort of thing is really, really important. It's all about the whole, you know, to, to work together with people to get the best finished project you can. I mean, I, when I was given those, or when I do give the pictures to the veterans, they're not just given a floppy print, you know, they're given an amount. Now that mm. only came about because I've, I've become very good friends with a framer, uh, Robin, who now will give me mounts, you know, I mean, I'll pay him for them, but they're not expensive by any means, but he taught me how to do the mounting properly so that I can present it properly. All those little things there that you can all share and help each other out with. Mm. It's, it's really about, you don't, you know, don't, you don't build your business from behind the screen. You've still got to get out there and build relationships with other, mm. other craftsmen, if you like. Absolutely. You know, just you, sort of as an aside to that to a certain extent is you mentioned in sort of building relationships and building building your business when you tra- uh, sort of transition from being a retoucher to you know taking photo- photographs and mm-hmm. portraits what how did that work for you and what i mean by that is how did you go about finding that business for you how did you find about finding clients um to, to for, for for your portrait business how, how did that work for you in the early days uh well one, one thing i've never done is i've never done advertising i've never never paid for any kind of advertising so what i kind of did was i used my own my own outlet as my advertising so i would do what i was always told you should never do loads of work for free but if i didn't have if i didn't do something for free i had nothing in the portfolio so i had yeah. to do free work to be able to photograph the kind of stuff that I wanted to get paid to photograph. So I would, I would do loads of free stuff to build up the portfolio. And a lot of stuff came from that. A lot of stuff came from word of mouth and people recommending and stuff. But I also kind of just, um, I used to go to breakfast meetings. You know, every, every town will have breakfast clubs where local companies can meet on one day in the morning at seven o'clock in a local hotel or whatever. You have a bit of a breakfast and you get to know who's who. What do you do? Oh, I do this. Oh, that's interesting. Well, ah, right, I need one of them. So that's a great way of networking because one thing that the trouble nowadays, I think, with people is with social media, they rely on that too much and they seem to think, not they, I'm I'm generalizing, but a lot of people can sometimes think that you don't have to have that face-to-face contact. And they and a lot of people are kind of wanting to conquer the world before their neighbor even knows what they're doing. Mm. Do you know what I mean? How many, how many neighbors know what you do? You know, if you went to if you went to two houses down in your street and said, "What do I do for a living?" I don't know. So, how can you expect to conquer the world if your neighbours don't even know what you do? And the only way they're going to do that is by going out and having these little meetings. Or, you know, one one thing I never did, but I would do if I was starting again now. I'd I'd have my my local village hall, which you could hire out for the day for about twenty pounds, stupidly low price. I'd have a local exhibition with tea and coffee and cake and to send out flyers and let the local paper know that I'm having an exhibition. Great way of getting people to know who you are and what you do. Wow. That, it, when you say it like the way you've just described all of that, it sounds so simple. And, and in reality, like, it, it is simple. The idea behind it is very, very straightforward. But I think when you're starting out your life as a photographer and growing your business – it doesn't seem so simple, you know, and no. I, I think you've just explained it in such a way that I hope that comes across to people who are starting their business mm. that 
it is all about your local area to begin it with. It is totally. Yeah. 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 Um, but and also working that. for free. Well, working for free. I don't care what anybody says. Oh, you're ruining the business. And no, you're not. No. I mean, you're not going to do it forever. You're going to you're going to do it to the stage. It's going to be a back scratching exercise. I'd love to. I ultimately want to photograph. I don't know sports cars. Who do I know? Does anybody else know who's got a sports car? Right. Can I come and photograph it? So they're doing you a favour by letting you photograph their beautiful Aston Martin. And as a thank you, you give them a print. Yep. You do enough of that, you build a portfolio. And then there comes a time when you've got to draw the line now. I've got a great portfolio here. I now want to approach car companies or, or showrooms or whatever, or people in the local area who, you know, who, who have got a bit of money and they, and they have these vintage vehicles. I'd like to be able to photograph them. So mm-hmm. I'll have an exhibition locally. They'll see it and go, here, yeah, would you photograph my Morgan for me? Yeah. yeah. Who knows where it goes? But unless, you know, you, you've got to have a starting point, like, like I said, with the style. But if you... If you don't have a portfolio to show what you want to photograph. <laughs> well, this is, I think that's the most important thing. You're absolutely bang on the money there. The portfolio is really what matters ultimately, because in the arts in general, nobody really ever asks you for any qualification. It's not like, do you have a degree in photography or a diploma or whatever? It's mm-hmm. like, show me what you can do. And based on that, as, as a potential client, I decide whether I like this or, or I don't. Mm-hmm. And so you have to create a portfolio first. There's an interesting like thing in the, in the headshot world. I was, you know, think that when people start out in uh, in, in headshots, you got to have some headshots to show. So yep. you got to get like your family, your friends, your dog, whoever Absolutely. in front of the lens and do it. Yep. And yep. Um, again, this is one piece of advice I was given in, in the beginning. It's like somebody said to me like, right, when you get to the point where you, where you photograph your friends, like d- don't photograph your friends, like photograph the kind of friends who are in the kind of professions that you want to get into. So if you have like people who are, you know, in the business world, get them, you know, take take their portrait because they don't, you know, there's a higher chance of them recommending them to to their colleagues mm. and friends and people seeing that so that you kind of get it enrolled into that industry. And I found that very, very useful because that's exactly how I built my, um, yeah. my headshot portfolio. Have, to having, having the projects can help you develop your portfolio. Yeah. You know, I, I knew a guy that going back a few years now, he did, he was doing a project to help him get portraits. He had a project called Who's at the Door? So he would have an, in his house, just in one of the reception rooms, he always had a backdrop and a light set up. So whoever came to the door, DPD, Milkman, you name it, whatever, <laughs> come here for a second. <laughs> awesome. They'd take their portrait. What a great project. Yeah, There's great. a guy I know called Ian who you could just see he was going, I met up with him because he, he wanted to sort of, how can I build my business? And I don't know all the answers, but I'll just share what I, my ideas with him. So I sat down with him over a coffee, and that was in in a place called Banbury. And we're sitting down having a coffee in Costa, and he was sort of saying, Look, I can't, I want to photograph characters and stuff. What can I do? And then he starts to tell me about, you know, he likes to go down the allotment and he's got, he does his veg. I said, Why don't you do, why don't you do a project on down at the allotment? I mean, think of the people down there. You could have some fantastic on location pictures of people. Mm on the allotment stood at, you know, stood by a shed with a shovel and, and veg over there. All that. I said, just do that. Yeah. Oh yeah. I don't know if he's done it, but I, I kind of thought, oh, Christ, I'd do that. That'd be a good project. Oh. So, you know, you do projects, you get really excited, you enjoy it, build your portfolio. And just because you've got pictures of, I'm using the, the, the allotment as an example, you know, you've got a great portfolio of people in that kind of style 
doesn't mean to say you're only going to be asked to photograph people down an allotment. It means people can see now what you're capable of. I mean, my my veterans projects, work has come from that that I never expected mm. because now, and this is a thing as well, people, people before, and if I go off on a tangent, just tell me, but whereas before people would say to me, what do you do? You say, I'm a photographer. What kind of pictures do you take? Portraits. What kind of portraits do you take? It was like a workflow that you're always mm. asked the same questions. Mm. Whereas when you've got a project like, for example, the veterans one, no long, I can't remember the last time I was ever asked, what do you do? Mm. It's a case of, oh, you're the guy doing that thing with the veteran. Oh yeah, I've seen that. And from that, people, people know what you're capable of. So you get hired if that's what you want. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's a, a project can define you. It doesn't pigeonhole you, mm. but it defines you and what you're capable of. <laughs> with the veterans project, uh, when, so when you, you know, once you started shooting that, how did you then put that into the public domain like how did you um get people to know about that project initially social social media posting hmm. them and having the website and um it's you know because there was a lot a lot of veterans involved and a lot of their families and you don't know who knows who and who does what and next thing you know there was the media were involved because one of the families had contacted the media to say oh my dad who you want to have on the program he's also been photographed by this guy next thing you know the bbc contacts you and it just snowballs if you don't, if you don't put it out there, it's never going to happen. Yeah. But if you put it out there, some of it's going to stick. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But but the thing with the project was that was never my intention. I didn't approach the project thinking if I do this, this could be really good for me. That yeah. was never the that was never the mindset. The mindset what mindset was solely what can I do for them, the veterans? And they always you always hear the saying that if you give, you will receive. Yeah but you shouldn't give expecting to receive. It will come back to you so long as your mindset is that you're giving. With the, does that come across? I don't know if that makes sense, yeah. but gotcha. you, your, <laughs> your intentions have got to be honourable. They've got to be the right intentions because yep. you know karma will come back. It will know that if you're doing this, if you're telling people you're doing this for the right reason, karma ain't stupid. Hmm. It ain't, it ain't going to give it back to you. But if you're out there doing it for the right reasons and you continue doing it, it will come back at some point. My God, I couldn't agree with that anymore. And that's when I was when I was younger in my early twenties. That wasn't really my mindset at, at that moment. And it was only I, I was learning more about audio engineering at the time, and you know, trying to improve my skills there. And actually, there was um, a couple of guys uh, called oh, uh, Graham Cochran and Joe Gilder, right, who do teach all of that. And they said exactly what you just described right there and suddenly it just clicked and it totally changed my life mm. with the way I approach things and thought absolutely right and all all I ever do now and it's ever done is just help if I can help great if I can give I'll give and mm. never expect anything in return ever mm. invariably exactly like you just said it eventually it does, it does not all yeah. of them will come back but in other ways they start coming exactly. back to you and it's a circle exactly yeah, totally. Um, mm. If you take anything away from this podcast, that one <laughs> right there. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> but it just it goes to emphasise also, you know, again the importance of personal projects. Yeah, massively. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think I mean massively important. You know, you've mentioned it. Uh, we've had um, in previous episodes. We've had um, we've had guests talk about um, the importance of, of personal projects and uh, getting involved in that, and um, it, you know, and ultimately. 
it will help you grow as a photographer and as an artist, mm -hmm. um, but it will also put your work out into the world and, and it will eventually come back around, you know, like these things do usually. It is, it is the best way of getting known that I can possibly think of mm. doing a project. You just work on it, you'll get known for it. Yeah. And that then will tell people what you're capable of and away you go. No more having to explain, no more having to barter. That's what they know you can do. So, Glenn, thank you very much for being a special guest on this episode. We have come to the end of episode 46. Of course, if you have been listening to this episode on audio, please don't forget that you can head over to youtube.com forward slash camera shake, where you can see our faces in full and glorious Technicolor. Um, also, you know, show us some love, hit the subscribe button, ring the bell, click a like, all of the things that YouTubers usually say you should do. Um, that would be fantastic. But that being said, without further ado, we will see you again next week. Have a great time and we'll be back with episode 47.